Aloha, Robo. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Aloha, Hawaii. <laughs> Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Take the next 40-odd minutes to get your hands on some tips and tools that will get you working at your best in both your business and your personal life. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Another big week for us. And also back in the studio this week, Gary Burtwistle. Uh, did you miss me? Mate, we missed you. Yeah. It's just sad, though, can I say, that my co-host of a show called the Mojo Radio Show goes all the way to Hawaii, and all he brings me back is a show intro. <laughs> Sounds like uh, you had a good time, She was such a though. lovely lady, too. I met her on my way down the street to get a brew. And right. uh, she walked past me and she said, she say, uh, have a blessed day. And I went, oh, nice. Oh, stop. <laughs> stop. Pulled out my phone and recorded that. So thank you to my, uh, my Isn't that passing stranger in uh, Waikiki. She said, yeah. So just, she was just, just a local? It, it, it's really interesting over there. I mean... There's a whole language of, you know, the, the, the little finger and the thumb out, you know, like the, I think if they call it now, but that sort of hang loose, you know. And uh, I've got to say the people, a bit like the Fijians, the people in Hawaii, the, the true locals are just so sweet and so happy and they get such a great energy. Yeah. And that whole thing you see at the surfing of, you know, the, the finger out and hang loose, it's yeah. just, it's so prevalent. And um, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually... For, for a place to go for a break, mm. I highly rate Hawaii. It's fantastic. Right. Well, it's lovely to see that you've got a tan and you're looking refreshed. The, um, After all this rain this week, I feel like it's washing off. Yeah, the sunlight hadn't... I worked hard. I worked hard. <laughs> the sunlight hasn't added any hair to your bonds, though. What's going on there? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. So, um, mate, I have got nothing for No, this I know you haven't. I've show. done all the work. <laughs> yeah, hang on. What have you got? Here we go. The Mojo Radio Show. So, uh, listen, the Halloween was just over a week ago, so I thought this was uh, an interesting one. There's been some studies done around turmeric and its, and its healing properties and all that sort of stuff. In fact, we've talked about its anti-inflammatory properties on the show before, right? True. Yep. So scientists have been mucking around with, um, with other side effects of eating turmeric. And um, some guys from the City University of New York trained some rats to become scared when they heard a particular sound. Now, it doesn't go what go into what that sound is, but we can only presume. But um, scientists realised that when the creatures were frightened, they froze. So uh, what they did was over, over time, they fed half of the rats turmeric and the other half, they just fed their normal meal without the turmeric. Uh, and a couple of weeks later, they redid the tests. And what they found was that the rats that had the normal food still froze. So in other words, they were still scared. But the rats that had the turmeric infused diet didn't freeze. In fact, they ran and had the complete opposite effects, which suggests that their fearful memories of that sound had actually been erased. Hmm. This is interesting, Robbo. I mean, you could, you could take that, that if you were having to front up for a big presentation or you're going to do a speech mm. or you were going to play a big footy match or proposing to your partner, whatever it may be, it was a big event coming up and you felt some fear going through your system. Hmm it would make sense for you to drop some turmeric into your shake or into your juice or into your meal, salad, scrambled eggs. And and what's also fascinating with that is I, just yesterday, uh, on my way to Pipeline to Mm. check out the waves, I stopped at Whole Foods, Mm. which the Whole Foods markets is just Absolutely brilliant. Man, I just I could have spent my whole time. I could live in there. I kid you not. <laughs> I could live in Whole Foods. But I had a green smoothie on the way down to Sunset Beach and yep. it had uh, turmeric in it. There you go. So you, you weren't feeling too worried about coming on the air today then? It's <laughs> <laughs> hanging loose, brother. Hanging loose, hanging, hanging loose out there. there. <laughs> well, uh, we uh, we should probably dive into this week's interview. It's got nothing to do with turmeric, but we do mention cinnamon. Let's get into it. Getting your mojo working. This is the Mojo Radio Show. So, mate, you've got to love an interview about food, right? Come on. You can't go wrong with this one, really, can we? <laughs> I have to say, one of the things I was looking forward to getting back to, to Australia, was my Bondi chai. You didn't find any over there? Very closely... No, not not at all. It's just not big. And the other thing that I couldn't find was a decent cup of coffee. Wow. My okay. goodness. Man, yeah, I was yeah. hanging out for my Fish River roast, let me tell you. So right. uh, that's, uh, that's my Sedgway 
for this week's <laughs> guest, folks. You can is, tell he's been on holidays, can't you? <laughs> yeah, it's, this is not the tightest show we've ever done. <laughs> so I met Melissa Edivian mm. at a gig up in Newcastle at the Hunters and Collective. And at the gig, Melissa told her story. Now, Melissa and her husband, Martin, run Bondi Chai, which is a fantastic milk-based drink that Robbo and I have taken on in the last couple of months. And hearing Melissa and Martin talk about their journey, what they've gone through, how they work together, play together, they do everything together. It's just a great story. They're an award-winning product. The business is going through the roof. It's only less than a decade old and it started with the dream. And I was very excited when Melissa agreed to come on the show to talk to Robbo and I. So, Melissa and Martin, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Hi, Gary. Now, I have to state for our listeners straight up that I am sitting here interviewing you guys with Robbo and in front of me I do have my Bondi chai mug <laughs> full of product. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I must say, our household has gone absolutely nuts for your product. Um, we're loving it. Could you just just put us in the picture, guys, as to um, what exactly is a Bondi chai? Um, well, the simplest explanation is it's a milk-based tea drink, but that doesn't really tell you what it is. We always just say it's liquid donuts. So it's <laughs> all those spices that you have when you're having a cinnamon donut and there's vanilla and... There's honey and it's just, it doesn't taste like tea. It, you know, it's called a chai latte, so people think it's coffee, which is the first confusion, but it's a tea-based drink, but it doesn't taste like tea, it tastes like donuts. You know, what's really interesting is you can't see Robbo, but as soon as you said that, Melissa, Robbo leaned forward on the panel and went, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> That's the reaction we hope for. Yeah. <laughs> what is a temple? Um, <laughs> guys, take us through the journey. Uh, because I've heard you, I've heard you speak before, Melissa, on the background to Bondi Chai. It's a fantastic story. Take us through how this whole thing started. Um, well, we we found Chai Latte. We went to the states um, for the millennium. We wanted to be in New York at Times Square when the big ball dropped. And um, at that time of year over there, of course, it's freezing cold. And um, we didn't have much money at the time, so we ended up in Washington in a free bed. Um, that my sister had a friend over there and Martin was dying of the flu. And so we staggered into a little um, cafe in Washington and when we walked in, it, it didn't smell like coffee. And mm. um, when we asked the guy behind the counter what everyone was drinking, he said, it's chai, man. Um, so Martin, being the, the one that's always up for something, you ordered one and um, we discovered chai latte. What was, your, what was your background for you and Martin prior to finding this product, what, what was your background? Oh, very mixed. Um, Martin had mm. been running his own um, PR consultancy for oh, 10 years by then. I, I had a bit of, I was a bit of a jack of all trades. At the time, um, I was working as a desktop publisher, but I'd done anything you can imagine, secretarial work, lab assistant work, telephone conference call centre work, you name it. So I, I was a bit of everything. And Martin had that sort of um, PR background. So we worked together, um, me desktoping, um, him PRing, event coordinating, all that sort of stuff. So when you were in this place in Washington, this guy's told you, what, what, what did you do after that? Like what, was the, what were the steps you took to, to start this process? Uh, we became customers. We bought some chai. We bought a pack of it to <laughs> And uh, we drank it all. And in those days, email was only just starting to get off the ground. It wasn't all that big in Australia in those days. But um, we we decided we'd better get in touch with these people and see if we could buy some stuff. Some of their it was called Pacific Chai, the product we bought. Uh, rang the company. Oh, we, actually, we didn't ring them. We did finally drag out an email. We emailed them and said, "Where do we buy your product in Australia?" And they wrote back and said, "Well, unless you're going to sell it for us, then you won't be able to because we don't sell it over there." So. Melissa and I sort of looked at each other and said, oh, well, you know, we could probably, we could probably get some of it. I had some friends in the food game in, in Launceston in Tasmania where we were living. And um, we rang, a few, rang around a few of them and they all said, no, we don't need it, thanks, we don't want it, until I finally got to my last phone call. I think I'd rung about six or seven food distributors. Uh, and the last one I rang, 
uh, when I was a journalist, I used to interview this guy. He was a footballer, and he'd gone into food as a retirement project. And he, um, being the kind of guy that he was, backed himself all the way and just said, uh, yeah, bring some in. We'll go with that. We'll run with it. So he ordered a pallet of the stuff without sight unseen, basically. Um, tasted it. Obviously thought it was going to be a good thing. And so we thought we'd done our job. We'd, we'd got the stuff into Australia, and we were going to be able to buy it at wholesale, which is a real bonus. Um, but then he started, the guy in the food game started saying to us, you know, wanted to know more about the product. He wanted to know where it was going to, how he was going to secure long-term supply of it. All that. And gradually we got drawn into what was acting as an agent for the Pacific Chai brand owners over in Richmond in Virginia, which is where they were based in those days. And so we got it kind of excited about the product, got a, a bit, you know, a bit of a thrill out of uh, playing around with it, really. That's all we were doing. But the more we got involved with it, the more we could see that it was actually going to take off. The guy, the, the guy in Launceston was starting to sell reasonable amounts of the stuff to his cafe customers. Um, so we jumped in a plane and went across to, to Virginia and decided we'd get inside the heads of these two guys that owned the company over there and, and studied their business and studied what chai was and why, what made it special and what, what to look out for, basically. You know, they laid out, if you like, a, a set of footprints in the snow for us to follow. Um, and all along, we were always convinced that they were going to sell out. You know, they were only a small operation, but they were growing like crazy. There were, they had semi-trailers of, of uh, stuff going out every two or three hours from their warehouse. You could just see it was taking off. And um, as we were studying them in our, in our own way, we couldn't work a way to actually cut a margin for Melissa and Martin in it all. It was, it was just impossible. You know, the freight from America, the... I think the exchange rate in those days was 50 cents in the dollar. Uh, so there was just no money in it for Melissa and I as an agency uh, acting on behalf of the Pacific Chai brand in Australia. So we, we fiddled around with it for probably two years before finally they did the right thing and sold. <laughs> they sold their business. Um, and that left us now with a distributor who was pretty angry because he just he, he just managed to secure some pretty big uh, customers. I think Cerebos uh, was one of the companies, a massive company. And so he basically turned to us and said, well, look, guys, you know, what are we going to do? I've, I've, I've got all these customers and no chai now. You know, we've just got it going, and, and they're going to leave it in the lurch. And for about the last 18 months, Melissa and I have been toying with the idea of actually building a product of our own in Australia. And so, you know, that was really the catalyst, I guess. It, it basically said to us, well, here's your opportunity. Are you going to go with it or not? And we convinced ourselves that if we got to the point where that opportunity arose, that we would take it. So it took us about four seconds, I think, to make up our minds whether we were going to get in or not. But it took another about eight months to actually develop a recipe, um, blending into our product what we thought were the strengths of the product and blending out what we thought were the shortcomings of the American product. Um, and so we came up with what was a very robust formula. Um, we knew nothing about the food industry. So we engaged people who did. We, we engaged manufacturers who, who created powders to make our, pro our product. We knew nothing about the, the transport industry, so we engaged third-party logistics companies to warehouse our product. We knew nothing about packaging, so we engaged a packaging company to package our product. Um, we were fortunate in the, in the PR and marketing world that we came from that we knew people who were great graphic designers, we knew a little bit about marketing and how to get a product out there and, and sell it. So we focused on the areas that we knew we had expertise in and we bought in, if you like. the, the Nowadays they call it outsourcing, but there's no such word in those days. Um, so we bought in the expertise that we needed to be able to go from ground. From day one, we were basically hitting the ground running. We had the expertise to scale massively. These companies were huge companies that we were dealing with. Um, kept our cash flow to basically, you know, whatever we needed, we just came out of our own our own mortgage. We just used money out of a, a line of credit that we'd established to uh, to develop some um, uh, some income from a, a property portfolio that we were trying to develop. And so we kept everything down to an absolute minimum, because which was just as well because <laughs> we had to buy a ton of product. That was the that was the minimum order that these people would take from us. So we had to buy a ton of this stuff, and we sold I think 17 kilos of it in the first. <laughs> <laughs> We were kind of, um, we, I mean, we didn't actually sort of look at each other and say, holy crap, what have we done? Um, <laughs> we still felt confident that, you know, that was just the first month. You know, let's not even count that. But, but nevertheless, it was a bit of a salutary lesson. It went, we knew it wasn't going to jump off the shelf, let's put it that way. And that there were some hard yards still to be put in. So we just rolled our sleeves up and, and started, you know, jumping in and, and making some real effort. Fortunately, we still had a PR business, which was, you know, turning over a couple of hundred thousand a year, so we were able to derive a reasonable income from it, 
uh, alongside right. this little drinky dink chai game that we were starting to get involved in. So you had something going, you had the, the main business you still had going and you were doing this as a, not, not as a sideline, but it was a major, it was a major activity, but you still had something to supplement your cash flow. So Martin, Martin focused on the PR still and I just sort of got in on the logistics and coordinating yeah. and trying okay. to make sure everything went on time. So I sort of focused on Bondi Chai when we first got started and Marcus just kept, um, Martin kept making sure we had money to pay the bills. Yeah, that, that's one of the points I think that, you know, people talk about entrepreneurs as being, you know, capable of risking it all and jumping in with both feet and all that sort of stuff. I've got to tell you, if that's the definition of an entrepreneur, then we're the, we're the it, polar opposite. <laughs> yeah. Because we did nothing without making sure that we had the, the worst possible scenario covered. We, we always examined every decision we made. We said, well, what's this going to do? Is it going to kill us? And if it didn't kill us, then we were prepared to have a go at it. But, it. but it did take a fair bit of, you know, soul searching and making sure that we were covered in every way that we could um, before we finally jumped in. And I must say, I didn't give up PR. I actually snuck out of PR. Melissa and I used to work together, and we still do work together, on, on, but we used to work in a room with desks side by side. And I actually stopped. I made a conscious decision in August 2005 to stop doing PR for that month. So we wouldn't get a PR check <clears throat> in the month of August and focus instead on trying to find new distributors, on trying to find new cafe owners that would take our product and actually going out there and selling our product. And in that month, we made enough to get by and I never went back to PR after that. In a, in a PR sense, um, guys, what was it like to introduce a brand new product to a country with a weird name like Chai. But, you know, everyone says, you know, if you can be first, you know, lead, lead the market and go in there and be first to the market, it, it's great because you haven't got any competition, but it's, it's challenging because no one's heard of it. So you're doing all the groundwork. So in one, in one way, and we see this already in Tasmania. Tasmania, we were living there. That was our first market. It's still one of our strongest markets because no one had heard of it. We got in there, we got loyalty from the cafes, we got loyalty from the people that were drinking it. And so when other chai started coming on the market that didn't taste like ours, the people going to the cafes wouldn't have it. So even if the cafe owner wanted to change, you know, that was something, it was change and no one likes to change. So in the, in the early markets we had, we actually are very strong. And it's only when you get, you know, when we're getting into markets like Sydney, which everyone would think was our first market, which is actually our last market, there was already chai in the market, and so you've got to work a lot harder. Oh, okay. Yeah. How did you, how did you get a cafe on board, Melissa? So you walk in with a product that someone hasn't heard of. Yeah. How did yeah. you? And you just used the word, um, you know, getting loyalty from a cafe. What what were the stepping stones for you to get somebody on board? Well, I mean, basically, the simplest thing is we had to get in there and get them to try it, just to taste yeah. it. And you know, it, and typically cafe owners are men and so hopefully you hope that they've got the girls there to try it because they're typically guys that drink you know short black yep. <laughs> and that's not our cafe uh, our chai market that's for sure so um yeah we'd normally get in there and say can you make one and try it and then they would understand what it was because you know chai doesn't tell you anything and um we certainly you know we had a lot of early wins in you know university campuses cafes on campus because we actually got to the point where in the one in um, Hobart, they were selling more chai than they were hot chocolate, you know, and then when you get into an environment like that where word of mouth is, you know, king. king, they're all telling all their friends what this new stuff is and you get this viral thing happening in those younger people who will try new things. I think, Gary, too, the other thing we, we very quickly learned was that um, we have, I don't want to insult anybody, we have an expression that says you can't push a wet noodle, uh, but you can pull one. And if I were to describe cafe owners as being those wet noodles, then the only way we recognised that we were going to get this product to fly was to actually have their customers asking for a chai latte as opposed to we suggesting they might like to sell it to their customers. Cafe owners seem to be very responsive, very quick to respond to the, the queries from their customers, but very quick also to put the hand up to a new rep coming through the door. I mean, you know, you've got to pity them. They'd probably get a rep every second minute going inside, coming into their door, trying to flog them the next big thing. And so, you know, it was a, we were up against that wall, and so we decided we'd better get out amongst the consumers. And fortunately for us, back in 2005, I think um, things like the Good Food and Wine Show was just starting to launch in Australia and very rapidly became what I call a national sport in this country now. There's a food show of some kind on just about every weekend somewhere in the country, and we went to just about every one of them, handing out little 
20 mil samples of our product to whoever would stand still for more than 20 seconds. And in that way, we created a, uh, we helped to create, I guess, we didn't create it single-handedly, but we were certainly one of the people in the vanguard of introducing chai latte as a drink to the people out there who were non-coffee drinkers who were feeling, well, you know, I'm, I'm really not enjoying my time in, my, in the cafe with my girlfriends or boyfriends or mates or whatever because I'm having to drink flat, uninteresting tea or kiddies drink hot chocolate when everyone else is drinking macchiatos and cappuccinos and lattes. And, and suddenly with this chai latte thing in front of them, they could actually now much more fully participate in the cafe culture that we talk about in this country. It's very interesting, Martin. I was in a cafe just yesterday morning with two young guys who are both, I don't know, 26, 27 years old, and uh, we were having our traditional macchiatos, dry macchiatos, and one of the young guys said, oh, and I'll have a tea. And the other guy looked at him and said, you know, why is that? He said, well, I've already had my limited. I've already had two or three. So yep. I'll grab a tea. Um, and he did bring him a, a, a chai tea. So I think you're quite right. There's, there seemed to be a, a turning point now where this is becoming more acceptable now as a, for, for a, a new audience. But this is not, for you, this is not just an Australian thing now. This is actually, you're distributing around the world, aren't you? Yeah, we've certainly had some uh, some fun with that. Um, I mean, the very name Bondi, uh, we chose that while we were living in Launceston. We registered that name. Probably one of the first companies, I think, to actually register a name using the Bondi Beach name as a uh, as a flag, if you like, in the sand, because we knew we were going to be going overseas with that product. We knew that it was a very narrow niche that we were going to be selling into in Australia. And we knew that if we wanted to make a, a you know, we had a, you know, the, the famous bee hag. Um, that was that was born very early in our business, that, and that was to be selling one million cups of Bondi chai somewhere in the world, <coughs> pardon me, um, at one million cups a day. That, so that's our big, hairy, audacious goal that we set about week, week two of our business. <laughs> And um, I don't know if I'll live long enough to see that happen. <laughs> so, I can tell you that uh, we knew that we had to get out of this country to make that happen. Uh, you've only got to do the numbers to work out just you know where chai latte sits in the in the marketplace. Uh, even if we were to secure twenty percent of all hot beverages sold in this country, you know the, the numbers are still only in the very low millions in um, in terms of consumers. So we we put a website together that was relevant for the rest of the world, not just for Australia. And it did its job. It actually started to generate interest because chai was starting to sweep around the world. Wherever milk is drunk in whatever country, uh, chai became a, an alternative to the coffee and tea set. You know, it became a genuine alternative to um, the three hot beverages that are traditionally offered by a cafe. Mm. And so we started getting inquiries from people in Europe, uh, in the Middle East, in uh, New Zealand, back in America even, and our response was always to respond within 24 hours and get samples off to them. And as a result of that, we've had some interesting little bushfires that we've set around the world. One of them is still going, <laughs> is, is the strongest one is the one in Europe. But we've even sold our product back to India. Yeah, I don't think we've actually mentioned yet that um, the word chai and chai latte is actually a westernization of India's national drink, effectively what is their national drink called chai masala. And just about every village, every almost every family in India has a secret recipe for their own chai masala. Wow. And so to sell chai latte from Australia back into India was like selling, I mean, the old story of selling fridges to Eskimos was just unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. And we were able to secure a contract with the second largest um, cafe chain, I suppose you'd call them, you know, the, the, the Indian equivalent of Glory Jeans or Starbucks. Uh, a company called Lavazza Barista, we were able to secure a contract with them to supply chai, chai latte to their 170-odd, I think, they had outlets around India. Uh, we also were able to sell it into places like the um, Oberoi Hotel in New Delhi, which is like the number one hotel in, the, in all of India. It's still, it, it, it used to go into their delicatessen there. Uh, we've sold into when the boys, when our boys, the army and the uh, military were over in the Middle East in the peacekeeping corps, at, um, I forget the name, Taran Kaut, I think it was called. We sold Bondi chai to the military supplies there. Um, we sold our chai into Dubai, into Jeddah in the Middle, in the Middle East. Um, we sold into Kuwait. We sold into Cyprus. Now, I won't bore you with the whole list, but it, basically we sold it into about 50 or 60 countries over the world. The latest one is a guy on, on uh, Reunion Island where the uh, piece of the MH370 turned up. Um, that guy was a Sydney barista, and he's from Reunion Island, so his passion was to go home and start a cafe over there, and while he'd been in Sydney serving Bondi chai, 
which he so he knew how how good it was. So he's actually now buying our product through our Western Australian distributor in Perth. He and a guy in Mauritius are both buying a, an order together, and then they split it up when they get over there. So you know, we, we end up in the most crazy places because of our, the way our product is just universally liked, loved, whatever you want to use. I'm, I'm hesitant to use the word love, but it's certainly <laughs> very well liked by a lot of people. Well, with all those, with all those, uh, those with all those people taking your product, I mean, I'm, I know you said you, you may not see the day you reach a million cups a day, but you've got to be getting close, surely. Well, we, we've done the sums on what we're currently turning over. Hmm. And uh, I use a 12-hour day because you can't obviously drink chai while you're asleep. Yeah. But, but in any 12-hour day, um, somewhere in the world, someone is drinking a Bondi chai every two seconds right now. Wow. Wow, nice. wow that's awesome. Yeah, I did the sums about 20 times because I couldn't believe it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that's the fact. Hey, Gary, we should, we, I wonder whether we should do the same sums and see how many people are listening to the Mojo Radio Show every couple of seconds. <laughs> yeah, <that's right>. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hopefully they'll be boosted you put, when you promote Bondi Chai in your... Yeah, radio. exactly. <laughs> when I saw you last, Martin, you said you had a plan written on a yellow legal pad and to this day it still forms the basis of the dream you guys had together. And yep. just hearing you talk about a million cups a day, what, what was on that yellow legal pad and... What, what did that dream look like? What did the plan, the master plan look like? Well, I mean, at the time, Martin and I were working in a consultancy, a PR consultancy, so we only ever got paid when we were working, you know, hours for dollars sort of stuff. So we were fully involved in, in, I mean, we were getting paid well, but if we didn't work, we didn't get paid at all. And so um, we wanted to spend time together. That was our, our great hope, and working together was fine as a consultancy, but we wanted to be making money if we were on holiday, if we were asleep. And to do that, we knew we had to look at a product, a product-based business, not one that revolved around us. Um, and at the time, we didn't know that product was going to be a chai latte powder, but I guess knowing in the back of our mind that we needed that when we discovered chai, we thought, well, you know, we loved it. It wasn't in Australia. You know, it was bound to be loved by Australians if the Americans were drinking it. And so we, the whole thing was about building a business that was outsourced, so we weren't, you know, we didn't need a factory with staff and all that. We could just send an email or ring up and organise stuff from anywhere in the world. We could travel the world with it and the, the tax man would help us because we'd be building a business and you know, we'd be making money while we slept. So that was our core of what we wanted to do when we built a business. Well, I think too, uh, Gary, we, that, that yellow legal pad you talk about, which we still have the, the paper of, um, when we, before we knew about chai, as Melissa made the comment there, we, we knew we were, we were in, we have an expression that says good is the enemy of great. And we were in a good lifestyle. We were, in, we were being paid well for what we did and we enjoyed what we were doing. We had great clients. They were wonderful people and they, were, they had a great product that we were you know, privileged to help and promote. So we had a good life, but we knew we wanted a great life. And the elements of a great life were what were, what were written on that yellow pad. So, for example, we we needed to be able to spend time together. As Melissa said, we've now joined at the hip. We've always wanted to be that way. Uh, we wanted to be able to generate income, not just from our own skills, but from the skills of others. We, we understood that you had to generate income by servicing or offering uh, or solving a problem for people. And we've always believed in the expression that it's better to have a business with 100 customers paying you one cent than it is to have a, a business with one customer paying you a dollar. So we, this this product just fell right into this mould that we created, basically. We, so we had the, the mould in our heads and chai, we ticked off all these boxes. As we started to tick these boxes off, it started to become apparent to us that we could get excited about it. I'm getting excited. My arms on my hair, the hair on my arms are starting to stand up just talking about this again because I can remember going through this checklist of being able to live where we wanted to live, being able to do what we wanted to do, um, being able to have the money to be able to travel when we wanted to travel, travel with, with business in mind because that then gives you an extra purpose rather than just lolling around with a camera. I hate those sort of touristy type travellers, tongue hanging out and taking pictures of everything. We, we travel with a purpose now. Um, we travel with um, at a level that we couldn't have afford to have travelled before. We live in paradise. I mean, we, we chose Port Stephens, which is where we live in north of Newcastle. We, we got in a car and we drove from Newcastle to Noosa, basically and stopped at every spot along the way looking for the type of place we'd like to live. And we chose Port Stephens. Uh, it is literally, as I said, paradise. It's like, it's like Sydney without... It's like Sydney Harbour without Sydney on it. 
in, in, up here. Um, we now uh, we live within you know 20, 30 minutes from an airport, so we can jump on a plane and get to anywhere in the world in a matter of time. In fact, we're off to Japan on Saturday to go out and do some work up there. Um, yeah, all those sorts of things. The things that make up a great lifestyle, we had them down on that piece of paper, and then when we got the chai thing came along, we used it as the measuring stick. So if we're going to leave PR, it's going to be, have to be a better business. It's going to have to be a better way of making a living. It's going to have to provide us with a better lifestyle. And as I said, chai, when we started to tick it off in the business model we built around it, was, was the answer and has been the answer. I'm glad to say 10 years on, if anything, it's been better than we could have imagined. It's fantastic. That's, that's, that's gold. There's gold in them being yellow legal pad. It's so powerful, guys. I think too many people create the business and then try and put the dream off the back, but you've created the dream and you've plugged the business into it, which, which is, it really is, uh, it's very inspirational. Melissa, you've said the two of you were joined at the hip. Yeah. You work together, you play together, you share a house together. What's what's the secret sauce behind your relationship? You guys have, you've both had relationships before. Yeah. You've now found the correct partner in each other. You seem blissfully happy. Business is good. I love the whole vibe of Martin's yellow pad and what you're doing now. What in your mind? What's the secret sauce between the two of you? Well, I think I think it's a mix of things, and like you say, we both had previous relationships that, you know, seriously, my first husband, I couldn't have spent all day with him in a million years. But, I mean, I think that, you know, it's a bit like it's a learning practice, isn't it? If you don't take something away from your mistakes, and we, we find that already, we call it school fees in our business, when we make a mistake, as long as we learn from it, then that was a good thing. Mm. And Martin and I both came together from, you know, relationships that weren't so great. And so we, I have to swear, we, I worked twice as hard. On the second one, so you know you're a little bit older, you're a little bit wiser, and you know that it takes a bit of work. And when both of you are doing that, then really, you know that's a really strong basis to go from. We're both, you know, we found something we're both passionate about, yep. and in and and we're about we're opposites of the same. We're different sides of the same coin. Martin is very big picture thinking. He's on the he loves surfing the net to see what's new. He's into innovation. He's got that marketing. Um, you've got a rapport with people. Uh, I'm a little bit more of a, a shrew. I'm sort of more of a details person. I, I really like to have a plan and, you know, I need a structure. And so we managed to, you know, it was just fortunate, I guess, that we managed to slot into roles into the business that just completed, you know, every every task that needed doing we could do. And I didn't want to do his and he didn't want to do mine. And so as a whole, we became a really powerful um, fun, you know, functioning business because I didn't begrudge him what he was doing. He didn't want to do what I was doing and we felt like we both added a, a strength to the business. And so that bonded us because we could we could discuss things and we have we, we still have differences of opinion on how things work, but we, we value each other's differences because we are so different. Yep. I think if there's a, ever a conflict comes up, Gary, in those situations... Uh, I certainly, and I know Melissa's mentioned this too in discussions we've had, you, the, the sense you have is that I wish, you know, she didn't do that. But then the next thought is, but it's the very reason, the very things that, she, you know, her, the elements of her personality that make her do that are the things that I love. So even though the actual action, you know, when you're teaching kids nowadays, the, the, the common maxim is to say to them, it's your behaviour I don't like. I love you, but I don't like your behaviour. And I think that really does apply with Melissa and I. You know, it, when when you see something that that either of us are doing, and we wish you wouldn't do that, it, you recognise also though that the human being that's doing it is actually the, the very you know their personality is actually what's making them do that in the first place. And you wouldn't change their personality for anything. Martin, can I ask you a question just on that? Um, Robbo and I quite often refer to a quote by Bruce Lee, who was the movie star martial artist, who said. It's not the daily increase, but the daily decrease. Hack away at the unessentials. In your relationship of spending so much time together, what are the unessentials between the two of you that you've hacked away? Boy. Having to be right. Yeah, I think, yeah, Melissa just said having to be right. I think that's mm. certainly the biggest one. Absolutely, mm. absolutely, yeah. Take, take away the need to be right. You don't need to be right all the time. It's, not worth mm. it. it's, just, it's just, you know, the small stuff that... Seriously, it's not worth, you know, do we, put, do we put the towels on the left or the towels on the right? Seriously? <laughs> it's 
squeeze the toothpaste from the end or the middle. Who cares? <laughs> all the things that people argue daily about, you know, who's right? You know, if they do it that way and you do it your way, well, we just live with it. Yeah. You know. But there is the really important one, though, guys, is does the toilet paper face in or out? <laughs> that, that one is really important. <laughs> I sure think ours hangs out. So we have two toilets. <laughs> as long as it works, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I heard you speak about, which I absolutely loved and I'm curious about it, is right from the start you had two flavours. Yeah. And... Melissa, when I saw you in Newcastle doing your interview, you said one of the comments you made was, and to this day, we still only have two flavours. Yep, Robbo right. and I have been on this, this bent for the, for, since the show's been going for just on a year now about simplicity and how elegant simplicity is and how we seem to be overcomplicating things. Has that, has that flown through all of your work, that sense of simplicity? I think so, and I think... I think what you need to understand is that chai is a very niche product, so we're never going to be all things to everybody. And so we just, we just, we spent a lot of time getting those two recipes right, and it was all about vanilla being the beginner's level chai, really inoffensive, anyone can drink it, you're not going to upset anybody, and the cinnamon being the chai drinker's chai, the ones that wanted a little bit more spice, wanted a bit more um, oomph in it. And if, if you've got that, then you've basically got the whole market covered. We regularly get people saying, oh, you're going to bring out another flavour. Can you bring one out with no sugar in it? Can you bring one out with no um, tea, with a green tea or a ruby boss with no caffeine? And it's all very well trying to cover all the markets, and a lot of the other chives out there do that. But in the end, it's a niche. We don't want to be a niche in a niche. It's, you know, it's already challenging to try and you know pay the bills with just the two. We don't want to have to have, you know, 15 different flavours in three different pack sizes and warehouse it and turn it over. It just becomes complicated. And I, when you try and offer people too many choices, they just don't make a choice at all. So we've always lived by that. I think Gary, that simple, that, that, that philosophy, if you like, about simplicity is absolutely, you've hit the nail right on the head as I think about it while, while Melissa's been talking. We often say, and we, without really probably realising it until now, we often say we'll do anything for the simple life. And if that sometimes means that we've got to pay more for something to be done by somebody else than, we've, than if we did it ourselves, then we've, we've been prepared to do that. I think that's where our business model came from, the desire to keep it as simple a structure as possible so that it caused us as the least amount of grief as possible. I think that's one of the reasons why we don't like to employ you know, scads of people. I hear people say, and they went from naught to 50 employees in five years, and everyone stands up and cheers and claps, and I just boil in horror at the thought of it. Um, because that's not, to me, that's not the way to judge the success of a business. It might be. I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm misguided. But that simplicity, I think, that you're talking about there is 100% what, what we value the most. We love nothing more than to sit out on our deck and look out over Port Stevens. I could sit there for hours just looking at the world in, a, in its all its simple, pure joy. It's so good. It's so powerful, mm, mate. Absolutely. Do you guys journal between the two of you? Uh, well, I don't know if you call it journaling. I, I've kept a diary, which I guess is another journal. word for a journal, of, um, since we started, of any major milestone or anything that was like a turning point mm. um, for the past 10 years. And it's just been an amazing resource, I have to say. You know, when did we hit our first one-ton month? When do we get our first pallet order? When do we get our first international order? <laughs> when did we hit a million dollars in sales? You know, all those sort of major milestones. I can just flick back through this diary. And I, quite often, if I've got a few minutes of an evening, I'll go back, if it's, you know, it's the 1st of October, I'll go back a year on the 1st of October and then another year and see where we were and what we were doing and what was, you know, the focus of our life. And I just, I love to see how far we've come. Now, you heard um, a wonderfully enthusiastic answer there to that question from Melissa. My answer is no. <laughs> he's not the detail man. He can't remember what he did yesterday. <laughs> no, he's, he's a dreamer. He's a dreamer. He's sitting on his belly looking up at Port Stevens. Right. I'm writing it down. Yeah. I'm not going to write this down. And I've got to be honest, if I had a balcony looking out over Port Stevens and I had a choice between journaling <laughs> or sitting on the balcony, I know what I'd be doing too, mate. I'm yeah. with you. <laughs> um, if you were today sitting down for whatever reason and you were 
tearing off a new page in your yellow legal pad and you were having to start out, would you do it the same way? Difficult to say, Gary. It really is difficult to say. I, um, I, I see kids being raised today. I've raised three children or participated in their, um, in their growing up, let's put it that way, and they're all functioning adults now in their late 20s and early 30s. And I often ask myself, when I see parents now, you know, dealing with the challenges of, of raising young young people in today's society, whether I do what they do. I find myself mm-hmm. seeing seeing them doing things that there's no way I would do. You know, I wouldn't put up with it. But, you know, I was I was of the uh, of the family uh, rule that you know if you spared the rod, you spoiled the child. Um, and today, you know, if you so much as look sideways at a child, you're you're frowned on by society. It seems. Yeah. So I don't know that I could say that you know given today's circumstances, that I would actually have the idea in me yeah. to start again. Yeah. It's, a, it's a much different world. I think um, Martin always says when we started, I mean, we self-funded from day one. We've never right. borrowed any money. And, in fact, the banks would sort of look at us and laugh if we'd gone mm-hmm. to them for the money because we, we both came right. into life together with not a lot of money to scratch together. Um, and, you know, Martin always says, oh, we should have gone harder in those early days. Um, you know, we would have got out front. You know, Sydney wouldn't have been the last market and been filled with chai. We could have been the first chai there because we were the first chai in Australia. And yet I think, you know, the fact that we did it at a pace where we were able to self-fund, it didn't have that stress of the bank manager cracking a whip because if you didn't yeah. sell enough this month, it was all over. And putting that sort of pressure on yourself doesn't make you think as clearly as you need to. So we did it probably a little bit slower than most people would say we should have done. But 10 years later, we've got a rock-solid business that gives us a lifestyle we love and mm. we haven't borrowed a cent and still haven't. It's self-funded Fantastic. a lot. Mm. Um, guys, just a final question, and, and I'd like to hear uh, from each of you. Um, do you have any daily rituals that you follow, either morning rituals, evening rituals individually, and are there any couples' rituals that you have that are – mandatories, non-negotiables in your day or your week? Um, I I do have a bit of a ritual um, that I've sort of developed probably over the last couple of years. Um, I like I like to spend um, some time meditating in the morning. I'm not a morning person, so when I when I get up, it takes me about half an hour before I can speak or think. <laughs> so what time do you normally get up, Melissa? Uh, seven. Okay. I'm not an early person. Anything if there's a six or anything below that in the number, I don't get out of here. <laughs> I'm with you, Melissa. I'm there. Yeah, so I normally get up and I um I use a I've got a meditation I subscribe to, so I try and do ten minutes, you know, just in the morning while my brain's still in that beta mode where I'm not really able to think. I'd like to do that, and then because I sit at a desk all day, um, I like to try and do a bit of a yoga, and so I have like a thirty minute routine I do, and I find a I'm a very stiff-bodied person, so that gets my body moving. But because it's the mm. same sequence every day, I find it very meditative as well. So if I start my mm. day like that, I'm sort of in the right headspace when I get going. Which uh, meditation app do you use or what do you subscribe to? Oh, I, I work with a, a self-development guy called Paul Blackburn and he has a yeah. month's meditation he puts out. So I just I use his meditation to just choose a right. different every month, yeah. And do you do a particular yoga or you just freestyle it yourself? Like you know what um, to do and so you just... I bought a DVD from an ABC shop <laughs> and I just put the same one on every morning. I just find that if I have to go through my head and I'll go yeah. through without the DVD, I don't need him telling me what to do. I've been doing it for two years. I know all the moves. But unless someone's talking to me, I've got so much going on in my brain, it goes off and does nice. its own thing. So I need someone talking to me and filling that space so that I don't put something else in it. Martin, do you have uh, daily rituals, mate, or morning rituals, yeah. evening rituals? Uh, yeah, a bit of everything, really. I, I get up in the mornings a little, little earlier than Melissa most mornings, um, probably sometimes even in the, with, with a four in front of it. But um, they're, they're rare occasions. But normally I'm up sort of, you know, as the sun's coming up or just before, regardless of whatever time of the day that actually is on the clock. And then I grab a book or make a cup of tea, grab a book, and sit and read for as long as my my mind will allow me to, because then the book that I'm reading usually gets me off into um, you know some sort of an issue that, that that's been raised by the book. So I then spend probably the next half an hour, to th- sometimes to even an hour, thinking about that, and or then 
my mind will, will move into other areas like what I've got to do today and or what challenge, particular challenge we're dealing with at the moment and how we might deal with that in a better way. So I spend, I suppose, reading and and meditating in a in a quiet way without actually going off into into transports of uh, free space uh, mm. about our business is, is my daily ritual in the mornings in the in the evenings we go to the gym most evenings um, and so certainly the weekday evenings and Saturday morning and so that's a very much a ritual and in fact I I find that we use the gym to stop work yeah. the gym the gym is actually a five thirty or a six o'clock start most evenings. And that's a really nice point at which you can say, turn the computer off or at least get away from your desk. Mm. I, th- I think if we didn't go to the gym, we'd probably still be working at 10 o'clock at night because you, you know, you, you're in the zone, you just keep going. So I find the gym a, um, a useful uh, break point in yeah. our lives in, in, in that sense. Um, other than that, uh, I really not, not I, I actually don't enjoy structure. I prefer yeah. not um, my day planned out you know, in every detail. Um, yep. And so I tend to like to shoot the breeze a little bit when it comes to that sort of thing. We're, dealing, we're working with some people trying to get some structure into our lives, actually, at the moment, because we recognize that our business is growing at a, at a rate that we need to take a step back and, and to perhaps restructure ourselves a little bit um, because it's starting to overwhelm us. Uh, the, you know, that lifestyle we talked about before is starting to, uh, starting to get threatened, and we don't like that. So we're working with people like Rachel Birmingham, I think, is you're dealing with, and I'm uh, and Simon yep. Reynolds. Oh, Simon, yeah, okay. Well, you got some good uh, good people behind you. Yeah, well, we weren't looking for them because that's another thing we've recognised when we work on our own. It's very easy to become insular, you know, and, yeah. and isolated from society, particularly because we don't. We lived here for eight years now. And I think the only only friends we could say we've got are the people that we we're pumping iron with next to each other at the gym. Um, we've recognised that we need to get ourselves into. You know, groups and into forums and into places where you can think outside your business, and that's where people like Paul Blackburn and Melissa just mentioned have come in. Uh, Peter Irvine um, has been a great friend of ours and a mentor to us. Peter, of course, is the uh, one of the two founders of Gloria Jeans um, in the world. He was in Australia, of course, when he bought the business, and now it's a global empire that he no longer owns. But Peter has been very generous with his time and his thoughts and his insights. So we've had. Those sorts of people in our lives as well, keeping us um, keeping us on the straight and narrow, as it were. Very good. Well, I'm going to say, um, on behalf of Robo and I, this has been fantastic, guys. You're such such a nice couple. Uh, um, the the business is great. The product is awesome, uh, and it, I just really appreciate you guys taking time out of your day to share with us. This has been gold. Mm. Thanks, Gary. Yeah. And can I just say too, guys, congratulations. I find that story really inspiring. It's, uh, I love it when um, especially Australian people sort of go out and show the world that we can actually do things better as well. I, I really like that side of it as well. Yeah, well, thank you. I thought she was going to say, I think it's inspiring you create a drink that tastes like a donut. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's inspiring a lot of people. <laughs> Robo's got a legal pad in front of him here in the studio and it's just got a big circle on it with a circle in the middle. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Mm. Mm. I'm, I'm with Homer, Homer Simpson, mm, donut. <laughs> <laughs> this has been great, honestly. This has been a terrific show, guys. The stuff you've shared for anybody who's in any part of their life in and out of work has been uh, so much gold in it. So um, mm. thanks again, guys. Look forward to seeing you soon and um, continue the fabulous work with Bondi Chai. It's terrific. Thanks, mate. Appreciate your comment. Thanks for that. Cheers, guys. Thanks. The Mojo Radio Show. So only two words at the end of that interview. Mmm, donuts. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know it's odd that it was quite fortuitous that week that um, a couple of mates of mine, I was over there place for a beer and a steak, as I told you. Mm. In the middle of the conversation, one of the guys said, do you want a cup of tea? And without knowing, he put this cup of tea down. I just tasted it. I'd never tasted a chai before. Mm. And uh, then within a week, I'd met Melissa and uh, Martin. Yeah. And, uh, and that night they gave me some. And I must say, I've become a bit of a fan. Yeah, well, Tanae's a coconut chai drinker. She adds a little bit of uh, coconut oh, really? to hers. Yeah. So uh, that's her favourite beverage of choice. So I'll put the details to Bondi Chai into the show notes, folks, Mm. because uh, here's something for nothing. If you get in contact with them through the website, they'll send you a free sample. So I'll put that link in the show notes for everybody because it's it's really worth trying. Our household is sold on it. We love love the Bondi Chai. Yeah, I just figured out where the one you brought me into the studio before we started the show came from now. (laughs) 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 Oh, let's do this. God of rock. 
Thank you for this chance to kick ass. The Mojo Radio Show's Lessons in Rock. So, this week, Lesson in Rock, can't go past this guy, Freddie Mercury. A oh. couple, uh, couple of world records for Freddie, just quickly. If, uh, Queen have the longest running fan club. They also have the UK's favourite hit of all time, Bohemian Rhapsody. These are all Guinness Book of Records records, by the way. Um, and the most amount of time for albums in the UK charts. How many weeks do you reckon in total their albums have been in the UK charts? Years. 1,322 weeks, a total of 26 wow. years their albums have been wow. in the charts. How's that? Pretty cool, huh? And they, you know what else? Yeah. They've got one of the most memorable soundtracks to a Hollywood film ever. You have to play this. Wayne's World. <laughs> Yeah, that's a pretty cool movie. Party on, Gaz. Party on, Robbo. No way. <laughs> no yes way. way. Swing. Swing. <laughs> so we digress. Freddie Mercury, as you know, had a bit of a struggle with drugs and also struggled with his own identity uh, in terms of being gay for a long time. Um, and I found this really interesting interview grab from him. Have a quick listen to this. I'd like to feel that after all these years, I'm myself at every given point. When I'm on stage, that's very Mercury. When I'm off stage, I'm very Mercury. And that's the only way to be. I mean, I don't... The days have gone where I actually felt that when I was on stage, when I came off, I still had to sort of portray that Freddie Mercury image because of other people. So pretty much there he's obviously talking about just being yourself. I mean, there was, you know, he's saying there that there was there was a Freddie Mercury on stage and then there was a Freddie Mercury off stage and he soon realised that he couldn't keep that up, that he just needed to be Freddie Mercury full stop. And I kind of thought that in your wisdom and from what I could see of it, there was actually a bit of a story, a bit of a lesson in there for everybody. Yeah, Look, there definitely is. I mean, even Kirsty Spragan, who we spoke to in episode 51 from memory. Yeah, it was, actually, uh, yep. Live from Los Angeles, mm. who went across to LA with the thought of creating her own online television show to help people and has done it very successfully. She talked about getting in touch with herself and being true to herself and even losing track of herself. So I think... Mm. There's a lot of science behind this. It's fair to say that most people aren't really in touch with themselves. Mm. And if I go back to The Five Regrets of the Dying, which I've spoken about before on the show, a fantastic book, mm. uh, or a book written called Chasing Daylight, which I thought was fabulous, which was about a guy who was given 100 days to die. And in those 100 days, he wanted to be very true to himself and say all the things he's always wanted to say. And the five regrets of the dying, they talked about the fact that most people, the number one regret is they never lived the life that was true to themselves. So yeah. I think what Freddie's saying in a rock and roll sort of way just reinforces the fact that we don't live our own dreams. Mm. We live the dreams we think other people think we should live. Yeah. We don't dream about what we really want. We dream about what we think we can do. Mm. And we're too worried about what other people think, you know. Yeah. So I think, um, I think, and you know, something else with Freddie, I've never forgotten this. Mm. Freddie Mercury is said to be one of the few artists ever that could stand on a Wembley stage mm. and the people in the very back row feel as though that Freddie's singing to them. Yeah. Yeah, there's only a couple of people in the Do you know what I mean? Like that, you go to yeah. a gig, and you and I have been to hundreds of thousands over the years, and mm. Mm. You know, they're great, but imagine being at Wembley with that many people and you personally think Freddie's talking to you. Yeah. That was the gift the man had from the stage. He was a yeah. true artist, a true performer, and um, yeah. he struggled I, uh, a lot with stuff, but it's quite profound, that uh, little lesson of rock there, mate. Yeah, I tried hard. <laughs> yeah, we've had plenty of time to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't had me annoying you in the studio, <laughs> That's so you've right. had exactly. downtime. <laughs> exactly. Now, speaking of living a dream, someone else who's living a dream and uh, came close to realising that dream just a couple of weeks ago, Wallabies coach Michael Checker. Mm. Since, the, uh, since the last episode of the Mojo Show went to air, he's actually been named International Rugby Coach of the Year, which is really? pretty astounding for a man who's only been in the job for a year. Um, we talked about some Freddie and some Queen stats. The most amazing stat for this man over the past 12 months is out of 12 tests, the Wallabies have won 10 and six of those tests have been against top 10 international rugby teams. So um, 
not a bad start for a man who was uh, who took over the reins of a team that was in pretty poor shape, really. I think what's also really good about Michael Checker, he is a uh, he's a big fan of the Mojo Radio Show. He is really, yes, um, right. Because <laughs> I think it's I think it's fair to say the Australian team, the Wallabies, had lost their mojo. That's right. And yeah. Michael Checker, through I think well, I forget what newspaper it was, he did he did make a statement <laughs> saying that he owed a lot to Robbo and Birdie for the Mojo Radio oh, Show. I think that was the Bullshit Chronicles, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Hello to Michael if you're listening. Yeah, and the Wallabies. <laughs> well done, not, boys. Not. We're all proud of you. Well no done. way! Yeah, no way, Garth. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so on that note, I think we should get out of here. And what better way to get out of here? The aforementioned Freddie Mercury and Queen and I Want to Break Free. How's that? Classic, we're out. we got to get going. No, no, no. Stick around. Hang out with us. Cool. Yeah, we'll stay and hang around with us with Alice Cooper. We're not worthy! We're not worthy! The Mojo Radio Show.
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.